Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, The Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rouleau University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on our workup and management of our hemophilia patient that we introduced in our last episode. Hopefully, listeners, you had a chance to check that episode out. Um, We really laid out all the fundamentals for the workup of a patient with a suspected hemophilia or some sort of bleeding disorder. And so super high yield in order to follow along with today's conversation. I think my favorite thing about that episode is that it wasn't about lung cancer. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, Dan. You know, it for for once we're not talking about lung cancer. I like it. I like it. I do feel like a lung cancer expert now that uh, uh, we finished that series, though. But I'm excited to also become a hemophilia expert. So, so this is uh, this is great. All right, guys, let's go ahead and roll that show. All right, guys, how are we doing today? I'm doing great. I just purchased a Nest Lock, and I know Dan thinks that the internet overlords are going to break into my house now, but I'm really excited to have this little keypad entry. I feel like a feel like a real adult right now. Honestly, Vivek, I'd be more afraid that Dan is going to yes. break into your house. We know how tech savvy he really is, so uh, I think you're setting yourself up for disaster. This is a good point. This is a good point. Yeah, I mean, it's always a risk, uh, and I, I think you know you just got to calculate: is it, is it worth it? to be a part of the future, knowing that I can have access to all your stuff anytime I want. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a big conundrum. And remember, guys, Dan's proxy business that he talked about with the flights. I mean, this dude's tech savvy. That's kind of what I was referring to. I would definitely lock away your expensive wines and things like that. We know he's got a particular palate for that kind of stuff. <laughs> so speaking of wine, uh, we did introduce our 25-year-old gentleman that was uh, in the emergency room last week just to refresh the memory of our listeners. It was a case that I had presented of a patient I did actually see um, on heme consults. So he's a 25-year-old male that had come to the ER with epistaxis and low back pain. Unfortunately, he had been intoxicated at the time of our uh, discussion with him, but all we knew is that he had some sort of bleeding problem in the past. We couldn't get much more information from him. And ultimately, we outlined our workup to figure out what this patient truly had. And it turned out that after we did the full history, we did the exam, we sent off some labs, he had a microcytic anemia, he had normal platelets, but he had a normal PT, but an abnormal PTT to 68 seconds. And as we said, that should prompt us to then get a mixing study to figure out why is this PTT abnormal. Thankfully for him, the mixing study did correct, suggesting that it was um, one of the coagulation factors that was deficient. And so then the question becomes, which one? So we did the activity assay, and we found out that his factor eight levels activity was roughly in like the 30, 38 range. So, you know, I think maybe today we can follow up on the discussion, talk a little bit about what that number 38 even means, and and more importantly, what we do for this patient. So what I think we've established from this is that this gentleman's bleeding issue is probably a hemophilia. But, you know, when you guys hear the word hemophilia, I don't know about you, but I kind of freak out. I think it's every uh, every person's nightmare because like the, the concept of a hemophiliac freaks anybody out. 
what is it? What does that term mean? And, and how should we be thinking about these patients? No, it really is an intimidating situation. I mean, you know that these patients can get very sick very quickly if they have bleeding. And I mean, I think it's dependent on where you get residency, but where I had residency, I rarely ever encountered hemophilia patients. I don't know why that is. I think it's probably just because my institution didn't have a hemophilia treatment center affiliated with it, but it's something that I came into fellowship very uncomfortable with. And so the, the main types of hemophilia that we think about are hemophilias A and B. There is hemophilia C as well. It's more uncommon. And these hemophilias A and B are, are sex-linked, meaning that males will express the phenotype by and large, and females mostly will be carriers. Obviously, there's some special situations where if somebody has heavily skewed lionization or is, you know, has a chromosome abnormality, like they're an XO female, they could express a bleeding phenotype and they're carriers that have a bad bleeding phenotype. But for the most part, we're talking about males having this disease and females being carriers. Hemophilia A is deficiency in factor eight. It's the most common hemophilia out there, affecting about one in 5,000 men. Hemophilia B is the next most common. That is a deficiency in factor nine, affecting about one in 30,000 men. There is a hemophilia C as well, which is a deficiency in factor 11, much less common, and tends to not have quite as bad of a bleeding phenotype as, as the, the first two. There are a ton of different mutations responsible for these two disorders. So part of the reason why when we're doing testing, we're looking at the sort of functional assays, looking at factor activity, as opposed to you know testing for a gene mutation like we do in some of the inherited thrombophilias, for example. And, and so... Why do these deficiencies matter? Well, these are really important enzymes in the in the intrinsic arm of the coagulation cascade. And remember, as we talked about last time, the ultimate goal of that cascade is to generate a fibrin clot or a fibrin mesh to stop bleeding, to help stabilize um, a platelet plug and and prevent blood from escaping through a defect in a, in a vessel wall. And so, when patients lack these essential enzymes or have a severe deficiency in them they may not be able to form a strong enough clot or a clot quickly enough to prevent major bleeding. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. So essentially the term hemophilia just means a tendency to bleed. And uh, in in the case of a inherited hemophilia, it's going to be a deficiency in one of these factors. That's great. So, you know, in terms of just as a reminder, some of the things that we discussed last week that would raise your suspicion of somebody having a hemophilia are going to be reliant on our history and our workup. So you'll remember that we presented the fellow on call criteria for investigating whether or not someone has a bleeding disorder. So you want to evaluate for mucosal bleeding. You want to check out their skin and look for any signs of bruising or rashes or telangiectasias. Uh, you want to look for ortho bleeding, like as Vivek said, joints and muscles. You want to ask about prior surgical uh, history and family history and note any significant bleeding at that time. And then of course, you always want to do a medication reconciliation and evaluate if there's any meds that could be predisposing someone, someone to bleeding. And we also went ahead and, and discussed the workup, right? And I kind of mentioned the highlights of that, getting a CBC, getting a CMP, getting a PT, PTT, and also getting a fibrinogen with that. We mentioned the Von Willebrand's panel as well, and we'll come back to that at a future time. But this is essentially the fundamentals of what we need to initiate our workup, especially for seeing someone new for the first time that may sound like they have an underlying hemophilia. And I just want to add to what Ronick just said, and that's 
with the history is particularly when we're thinking about hemophilia, remember ortho bleeding. Somebody with a platelet dysfunctional bleeding or something like a von Willenbrand's disease often will not have joint bleeding and spontaneous muscle bleeding. And if you're having a spontaneous joint bleed or muscle bleed, that's a pretty severe factor deficiency in most cases. Things like intracranial hemorrhage, post-op bleeding, major, major post-op bleeding, you know, those may tip you more to the hemophilia. But particularly, if you're going to remember something, remember those joint and muscle bleeds, always think the hemophilia. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about, like Ronick said, we got this workup. We know this patient's factor eight activity was low. Normal that Dan described last week is 50 to 150%. And this patient was in that 30 to 38% range when we tested his factor eight activity level. So this gets into how do we define hemophilia? And we define hemophilia as a factor activity level less than 50%. And we have different severity of hemophilia that we group into mild, moderate, and severe. Mild is above 5%. Moderate is 1% to 5%. And severe is less than 1% activity. The fascinating thing about this is that the phenotype of these patients can vary even if they're within that moderate or severe category. And in some cases, the mild category, these patients can have a very severe bleeding phenotype. So the actual activity level in general, a severe hemophilia, less than 1% activity, we're thinking about more spontaneous bleeding and a worse phenotype. However, you can have bad phenotypes in the moderate to mild category, which is why that bleeding assessment tool we had mentioned last week is very important, and it's linked in our show notes again here. But the key thing here is that we can categorize based on activity level. Is it greater than 5%, 1% to 5% for moderate, or less than 1% for severe? And it's really important to assess what the phenotype is and not just go to those categories. Yeah. And you know, it sounds obvious to say this, even these are inherited disorders, but they really are like lifelong chronic conditions for these patients. As you know, we, as we talked about, there can be spontaneous bleeding into joints and muscles. And uh, that joint bleeding in particular is a source of major debility for, for patients with hemophilia. Iron, anytime it's outside of a red blood cell, is a major irritant to tissues. So having hemosiderosis of the joints due to recurrent bleeding in a, in a given joint can really degrade the function of the joint and, and cause inflammation, cause chronic joint issues very early in life. And so understanding what a patient's propensity to have that type of bleeding it's really important in the chronic management of hemophilia patients. So Dan, what would what do we do then? So if somebody is having bleeding or they come into your office and are newly diagnosed as a hemophilia patient and they mention that they have this history of bleeding, what happens next? One of the first things you got to do is you do want to make sure that even if they're under your care as a, as a local hematologist, that they are plugged in with a hemophilia treatment center that they have somewhere that they're going yearly for a comprehensive exam where they can work with hemophilia-specific physical therapists, with hemophilia specialists, and have a good contact with the hemophilia pharmacy so that they are able to have access to the medications they need and to the sort of specialty care that they'll require for good long-term outcomes. But to to talk about sort of long-term management and goals of long-term management, after that first joint bleed that someone has or the first intramuscular bleed, your goal is to try and prevent additional bleeds. And the way to do that is often with prophylaxis. And so 
The goal of prophylactic therapy is to try and keep that factor activity level above 1%, above that severe range where somebody is prone to having these more spontaneous intramuscular and, and, and intraarticular bleeds. There's a couple of ways to do that. You can either prescribe patients recombinant factor injections, which are, are given intravenously to try and, you know, several times a week to try and keep that factor level elevated, or we could consider using sort of newer agents that, that have a similar effect. And we can talk about that a little later on. At this point, you might be wondering, well, why, why don't we just give prophylaxis to everybody out there? Uh, you know, ir irrespective of a bleeding history or a, a joint bleeding history, why not just try and keep everyone up close to normal? Well, there's a few reasons. One is, is convenience. So as I mentioned, these are intravenous injections that have to be given multiple times a week. These factors have different half-lives, but they're in the range of 12 to 18 hours for uh, factors 8 and 9. So in order to keep that, that factor level within the normal range or at least above 1%, you're giving it multiple times a week as an IV injection. Additionally, because these severe patients, patients who basically don't produce any meaningful amount of, of these clotting factors, injection of recombinant or other exogenous factor is exposing their immune system to a foreign protein, essentially. And eventually, some patients may develop antibodies against, fact, against normal clotting factors, against these exogenous factors. And, and that lands people in a whole different, even worse situation than just not producing the factor alone. Because then if you're trying to treat someone through an acute bleed, the factors that we have may not be as effective. And you may have to reach for other medications, other strategies to try and bypass or get around the effect of that inhibitor. And I think the one of the big things that I didn't understand for a long time, and this is bad that I didn't understand this, is the difference between what like what a recombinant factor meant and just a very brief interlude on the history of, of hemophilia patients. Before the 1990s, and we didn't have recombinant factors. We just had plasma-derived factors, meaning we had donor plasma and got those factors and infused it into these hemophilia patients. And many of these hemophilia patients had a high incidence of hepatitis C and HIV historically. And we're talking before the screening techniques happened in the 90s. Then we developed these recombinant factors. And, and what that just means, is, like Dan said, is that it's a factor made in a lab and we could form antibodies against these factors, which is why we're not just giving constant infusion of factors. And we really think about who needs these factor replacements. And the biggest goal is to prevent spontaneous joint bleeding because the most debilitating thing that can happen to hemophilia patients is really severe physical disability needing things like a knee replacement or a hip replacement and big surgeries when maybe they're in their 30s and 40s and they're having major physical disabilities due to this severe hemophilic arthropathy. And there was a New England Journal study where we actually studied saying, what if we gave prophylactic factor replacement in these patients, can we improve their outcomes? And we did show that we improved their joint bleeding outcomes and their functional outcomes. That's such a good reminder of why we approach the patients the way that we do. Vivek, thanks for sharing that. So just really quickly going, going back to our patient, let's quickly talk about what we would do for replacement. So you guys mentioned things about recombinant and plasma derived. So maybe if we can start with his situation. So in a, in a hemophilia A factor eight deficient patient, what would be some of the treatment options that we have? So our factor eight formulations that are out there, there's two. Uh, the human-derived one, the one that's derived from, from actual human plasma, is called Humate P. 
It's enriched for factor eight and for its carrier molecule, von Willebrand's factor, which we'll talk about in a different episode. But by and large, we use recombinant factors for these folks these days. And Advate is the one that, that we have access to uh, at Rulo University and is, is probably the most common. It is produced by recombinant DNA technology. So it's grown in a lab, essentially, and then concentrated down, purified and available in solution and, and that can be infused into a patient in a pretty short timeline. Got it. And and what about for factor nine replacements? Factor nine, and, and like Dan said, there's many formulations out there, but what we have at, at our institution is a drug called Benefix IX for nine. But again, you can Google a chart for all of the different sorts of factor replacements that are out there for recombinant factor replacements for either eight and nine. And we recommend that you Google those and, and the that's really the best way of doing it. We'll have some links in our show notes. But for us, we use the product called Benefix with the IX for nine. I feel like that reminded me. That is such a such a good reminder. So like Dan said, the two drugs that we have available at Rulo were Advate and Humate. And they both have eight in them because they're factors for factor replacement for factor eight deficiency. And then Benefix, as Vivek said, IX is nine, the Roman numeral nine, and that's for factor nine replacement or hemophilia B. Super, super clever these companies are. What can I say? And I think one other drug that I think I've seen some patients get is is this drug called emicizumab. So what is that and when would you be using that? This is a really, really cool drug. This is actually what I was referring to when I said, you know, for for prophylaxis, there is another option besides just infusing factor. And that option is emicizumab. It is a bispecific monoclonal antibody. So breaking that down, remember that antibodies, as we conceptualize them, are shaped like a Y. And on each of the two little branches of the Y, there is a part of that antibody that is specific to a, a target protein. Or a, or a target molecular surface, essentially. It turns out that the normal function of factor eight is to bring activated factor nine and factor 10 together so that factor nine can do its enzymatic action on factor 10 and activate it. They, what they did with emicizumab is they made one branch of the antibody specific for activated factor nine and the other branch specific for factor 10. So it essentially does the job that this missing factor eight would be doing in the clotting system few nice things about it. It doesn't have the same risk of antibody formation that you get with chronic exposure to factor eight. It doesn't require intravenous injection. So it's given weekly sub Q instead of multiple times a week IV. And it's also just really cool that we were able to rationally design this medication that is an, a bi-specific antibody drug that does the job of a missing clotting factor. I just think, I just think that's awesome. Does bring up a few complications here. Its presence in the bloodstream prevents our normal way of measuring factor eight activity. So if you have a patient on emicizumab and they come in and you did a factor eight test on them, it would be like 600%. It would show very, very high activity. And it's, that's not really meaningful. It's not uh, representative of what the drug is actually doing. It's just an, an artifact on the assay. Also, of course, we can't use this in hemophilia B. This is only for hemophilia A patients because it's only doing the job of factor eight. Uh, so if someone's missing their factor nine, this drug isn't going to do much. It's also not a drug that we use in the setting of an acute bleed. This is a maintenance drug. So patients can still have breakthrough bleeding on this. And, and that's where it gets a little complicated trying to figure out exactly how much replacement factor you should be giving them in that setting if they you know, are somebody who is just on this as prophylaxis and is not 
being treated with it because they have a history of having an antibody or an inhibitor. So uh, a few things to keep in mind, but it is a really exciting new avenue of prophylactic therapy for hemophilia A patients. That's great, Dan. And and I think the other thing that I just want to mention for possible therapies coming down the pipeline, there are gene therapies down the pipeline. There's a new drug called Futisaran. And all of these things, we're not going to go into a lot of details now as as they get approved, we'll, we'll have updated episodes and give you an update on these new drugs that are coming out in hemophilia. But just know there's things in the pipeline, and don't worry, listeners, the fellow on call will update you. Dan the man loves benign hematology, or rather classical hematology. I do want to highlight one thing, and then I think I feel like I have a good handle on, on how to manage our patient now. But it's something that Dan said. So we specifically discussed, you know, management of a patient that's not necessarily having an acute bleed, acute hemorrhage. Granted, there is some overlap there. And so what we discussed was you can give these hyperfractor replacement, but the emicizumab specifically, you cannot give in the setting of an acute bleed. In our next episode next week, we'll kind of go through a little bit more about how we manage patients that are coming in with active bleeds in the hospital and kind of how you should be approaching these patients. But for the purposes of conceptualizing what we discussed, just think of this as how you approach the stable patient that you're seeing in your clinic, for instance, that may have hemophilia. So, you know, giving them essentially replacing what's missing, or if they, for some reason, can't take factor eight replacement using something really cool like, like emicizumab. And, you know, for a patient like, like the one that we had, who's in that mild hemophilia range, you know, he's, he's well above 5%. The important thing for him to have is a knowledge of how to administer factor if he gets into trouble, if he has additional serious bleeding. So making sure that he's been counseled on how to give himself intravenous injections or if he's not willing to do that, making sure that he has, you know, access to that factor so that EMS could could administer factor infusions to him. And and then just giving him a few doses of, of factor replacement to use in this in the case of an acute bleed. And again, we'll we'll talk a little bit about that management of acute bleeding in, in a later episode, but it is important for folks, even with mild hemophilia, to have access to some factor that they can use on their own as they're getting to care in case of emergency bleeding. Yeah, Dan, that's huge. Any of these patients who may have a head injury, we want them to be able to self-administer as soon as possible so they can achieve hemostasis. And I think one of the important things to know that we'll discuss in the next episode is that it's actually pretty easy for us to calculate how much a patient needs to give themselves, and we'll go through that in the next episode so you'll understand what doses of these recombinant factors that we need to give. And just to know reiterate what Dan said, which is critical, is that these patients need to know how to self-administer because we want them to achieve hemostasis as quickly as possible if there's a concern for a possible major bleeding event. I think, again, I think this really wraps up a fantastic discussion on the approach to a patient with hemophilia. Any final thoughts that you guys have? I'm excited to test my new Nest lockout. <laughs> as am I. <laughs> and, and I just... Uh, I, I think I just wanted to point out something that I thought that was really fascinating is just, I don't know if anybody else picked up on it, but the, the incredible ranges of what is considered normal for activity levels and even the fact that you have to be less than 1% to be severe, but you could be 2% and be moderate and won't have 
potentially as severe as a bleeding phenotype as someone that's less than one. That's mind blowing to me. But but it's just again another uh, it's another reminder of how amazing and resilient the human body truly is. Yep. Yeah. You only need a little bit of that clotting protein to to work. It's it's nuts that you can have it's insane four percent and possibly not have any bleeding issues. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wild. That's wild. All right, guys. Well, then, until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.